Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, today I thought we would talk about the covenants. And specifically when I'm talking about that, I mean the biblical covenants in opposition to what's known as covenant theology in the theological, systematic theology realm. You have dispensationalism and covenant theology as the two major camps which interpret scripture. And we've talked a little bit about dispensationalism in the past, but today we are going to talk actually about the biblical covenants, like the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the new covenant, and how those contribute to our understanding of the scriptural story and how we can use those to kind of see how God's plan of redemption has developed. So I think we have some good things in store for us today. Now, the starting point for all this, obviously, is in the creation, the paradise existence of mankind, and then the fall. Because when you have the fall, essentially, mankind is deserving of death. The the whole situation is completely uh, catastrophic. And so man and woman are deserving of death, annihilation. They have sinned. They have alienated themselves from God. But in the midst of the fall, you have a element of mercy in Genesis 3.15 because you have God promise that he will send an individual who will bruise the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. Now, if you examine that verse in detail you understand that there's a parallelism going on there where there's a singular individual who is going to have a opposition against the serpent. And very clearly, it seems to be some sort of epic struggle since it's the culmination of the struggle between the woman and the serpent, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, and then this individual and the serpent himself. And so with regard to Genesis 3.15, Scholars have often termed it the proto-evangelion, the proto-gospel, as it were, because it is the first element of hope in Scripture. Right after the fall, after mankind has sinned, God promises that this is not the end, but that there will come an individual from the line of the woman who is going to achieve a reconciliation. He's going to defeat the serpent, and in so doing, he's going to right what is wrong with the world. He's going to correct it. And so immediately from Genesis 3.15, you have this initial hope, this this spark of hope in the midst of disaster. And from that point on, throughout Scripture, you have this desire to see a champion, a savior, a deliverer come. And so even in chapter 4, I think it's so important to see chapter 4 right on the edge of chapter 3, because as you go through in chapter 4, it seems right away Cain is born and Eve seems to understand his birth as something special because she says, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. So it seems like she understands, at least in some way, his birth to be special, whether or not she believes that he himself is the Messiah, the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15, we don't know. 
but it's likely that something like that is the possibility. And then even as you go on toward the end, after Cain, uh, I think, surprises his parents in many ways and kills Abel, at the end of the chapter, you have them name their other son Seth. And the reason for that is because the Lord has appointed for me another offspring in verse 25. And so there they seem to be connecting Seth's birth and so they name him in co- to coincide with the whole theme of offspring and the whole theme of the birth that God has promised uh, to, to have this salvation ultimately come through a deliverer. And so you already see glimpses of that in chapter 4, but you continue to wait and see what happens and you have catastrophic occurrences, namely... Uh, the introduction of just the ubiquitous nature of death and how that's being involved. And then you also have the angelic human interaction in, in Genesis 6 where mankind creates an alliance with angelic beings in some sort of attempt to thwart God's plan. It seems that's what's being communicated there. And all the way through chapter six, then basically what you're faced with is that when mankind is left on their own, they are completely lost and there is no, they have no capability of achieving the Genesis 3.15 plan on their own. They need a divine interaction. Now, here's where we come into the first of the covenants, and it's a major one, the Noahic covenant, because after mankind creates this alliance with angels and you have... God wiping the whole planet uh, of humanity, uh, just starting over with no one as family, as it, as it were. Basically, the question that we're, we're faced with is, well, based on our observations of what humanity has contributed so far, we don't have a lot of hope. And so what guarantee do we have that God's plan is going to work? I mean, what's going to stop God from just wiping mankind out again? Because it's very clear that even after the flood, it says in Genesis 8, 21, that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So even after the flood, God acknowledges that nothing has changed before and after the flood. Mankind still remains evil. This speaks very specifically just to the total and complete depravity of man, how everything is influenced by evil for man. And so when we think about that, we say, well, what what would stop God from continually wiping out humanity because there's not much hope for us? And interestingly enough, this is the circumstance in which God declares this covenant with Noah and creation. It's not just with Noah, but it's with all creation as well, with all the offspring, with every living creature that is with you. We see in verse uh, 10 of chapter 9, it's with all of creation. And the covenant is found in the end of chapter 8 where he says, Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So what the Noahic covenant is doing in this grand scope of redemption is basically promising that God is going to finish what he starts. It's the way I like to describe it by way of illustration would be, Uh, looking at a a photo or a painting, I'm not much of a painter or a photographer, but if you look at a really nice photo, the background plays an integral part to the picture. 
And when you when you look at the when you look at the uh, painting, the painting is nothing without having having a background on which you can actually do the painting. And so you start to think of these things as complementing one another. The Noahic Covenant ends up being the the canvas or the backdrop on which the entire story of scripture ends up playing out. The way I think I remember reading one author describe it would be uh, that of a theater. The Noahic Covenant is essentially something like a theater in which the entire stage of redemption takes place now. Because after the Noahic Covenant, you know that earth that God is not giving up on earth and earth is the center point for this plan of redemption and everything is going to unfold on earth. And and God essentially goes all in by saying, I'm not going to destroy it. I am going to do what I said I was going to do and I'm going to accomplish my plan of redemption. So when you think about that, it seems uh, essential that we have the Noahic covenant because without that, there would be no guarantee that God is going to accomplish his plan of redemption in a specific way. But with the Noahic covenant, then we have this backdrop and an expectation now that God is going to do it through this planet and redeem humanity. Now, as we continue on past the Noahic covenant, what we observe is that we have mankind continuing to sin. You have Genesis 9, you have Genesis 11, uh, the sin of Noah, you have getting drunk, uh, you have the sin of Ham, you also have the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. All these communicate, again, that mankind is not in any situation to contribute to God's plan of redemption. They really aren't. And so what we have in Genesis 12 then is God selecting Abram out of all the families of the earth, not because of some specialness on Abram's part, simply because God chooses him. And so when God makes a covenant with him, we see the covenant uh, initiated in, in chapter 12, and then it's developed in 13, and then really put on full display in chapter 15 with the ceremony, and then you have further explanation in 17 and 22. And 22 essentially functions as the culmination of the covenant, giving the summary of it. Uh, the the covenant is repeated uh, there to Abram, uh, th- then called Abraham, because of the test of his faith, which he has succeeded in passing in offering his son Isaac, but God spared his life. So what does the Abrahamic covenant contribute? Essentially, what the Abrahamic covenant contributes is the the means by which Genesis 3.15 will be fulfilled. In other words, it's basically promising that in verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now Paul takes that and applies it to the Messiah, to Christ, and how Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that. And we understand that when we trace the dots, that ultimately the Messiah is going to be the one through whom the families of the earth achieve maximum blessing. Now, there's a couple more dots to go before we get to the New Testament, though. Obviously, the Old Testament paints the paints the backdrop for this. And we understand just in general, though, that when God's making these promises to Abraham, he promises land, seed, and blessing. And through that blessing, the ultimate blessing is going to be found in the Messiah, certainly. But how does that work? That is the question. And so it is promised to Abraham that there's going to be this blessing that's brought to the world, but we don't really know how that's going to take place. So in one sense, we're kind of left on a cliffhanger and we see Israel go down into Egypt to be developed into a nation. It's really a masterpiece of God's 
genius to send Israel to Egypt in order that they would not mix with the Canaanites and in order that they would have time to develop as a nation. They don't intermix with the Egyptians because the Israelites are an abomination to the Egyptians. So you have all these things happening and they come out of Egypt through this grand and glorious exodus where God completely decimates the Egyptians, shows his mighty hand. And then at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, you have what is known as the Mosaic Covenant given from God to the people. It's also referred to as the Sinaitic Covenant. So what elements make up the Mosaic Covenant? Well, essentially built into the Mosaic Covenant is this conditional obedience when you are obedient, then I will bless you. I mean, that's very essential to the elements of the blessing and cursing found in the covenants of that time. And the implication isn't just random blessing, but the blessings are actually tied to the Abrahamic covenant. For example, in Deuteronomy, which is the, uh, we get the name Deuteronomy second law because it's basically a re reiteration of the covenant, a refreshment of the covenant, if you will. When you see Moses explaining the links between the covenants, he says in verse 12 of chapter 7, he says, because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, he's talking about the list, the rules in the Mosaic covenant, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. Now, there, I, th I think what we need to understand is he's not just talking about the Mosaic Covenant, that, that covenant, in other words, he's, it would be kind of, uh, I guess, superfluous to say that if you are obedient to this covenant, then God will be obedient to this covenant. That's That doesn't really make sense in this context. I think there it's, it's clearly referring to the Abrahamic covenant. And so what it's talking about, because that would be the covenant that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so I think that when what he's saying ultimately is that the Mosaic covenant administrates the Abrahamic covenant. So in other words, when you are being obedient to this covenant, I will bless you just like I promised in the Abrahamic covenant to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you're obedient to this, you are basically then putting yourself in a position to achieve maximum blessing and to have the blessings which I intend to flow through the Abrahamic covenant. I, I administrate that through the Mosaic covenant. And then also you this isn't just uh, going to impact Israel because even in uh, chapter four of Deuteronomy, you have Israel admonished to keep the commandments and, and to observe them because then in chapter four, verse six, it says, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And so in other words, what it seems to be saying is that this is also the way you impact the nations. When you are obedient to the Mosaic Covenant, you you create this funnel for blessing for you and the nations also see that and that's an attraction to them and you ultimately then channel that Abrahamic blessing to the other nations as well. Well, a little history lesson for us as we read through the Old Testament, Israel is not very effective at obeying the Mosaic Covenant. And so they fail time and time and time again. And so ultimately what ends up happening is you have an invocation of the curses all the way from uh, basically from the time of Judges, which comes right at the end of uh, the conquest, all the way through uh, even into the New Testament times. You see remnants of that disobedience continuing to occur. 
So all of, all of Israel's all of Israel's time is marked by disobedience, essentially, with small, very small, minuscule moments of obedience. And usually that is because of one or maybe even two individuals that inspire that, usually a king or a prophet that inspires that kind of obedience. But then, for, I think a great example is in the time of Josiah, for example. Josiah inspires this, this obedience to God, and yet Jeremiah, in his prophecy, says that this people turn to me in pretense only and not with their hearts. In uh, I think it's Jeremiah 3 for that. Now, when you look at that, it's uh, it's clear then that there are many times in Israel's history, even where they they have this faux kind of obedience, this fake obedience, and ultimately it's not true, genuine obedience from the heart. So the Mosaic Covenant is intended to administrate the Abrahamic Covenant. However, it it does not do that because Israel is disobedient. Now, this is where we get into a discussion of the law and, and things like that. And, and all I would say on this issue at this time would be to summarize this. The Mosaic Covenant is an amazing, amazing uh, system. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. It is designed by God. It is, it is a reflection of God's character. It does so many great things. The problem with the Mosaic Covenant doesn't relate to the Mosaic Covenant. It relates to the human heart. And that's, again, one of the entire points of Deuteronomy is that the heart is wicked and Israel's heart is what keeps them from being obedient to God. And so when we look at the Mosaic Covenant, it's not that the covenant itself is ineffective or wrong or uh, is sinful, nothing like that. It's the it's that the human heart is sinful. In fact, that's one of the, in reality, it becomes one of the main benefits of the Mosaic Covenant is that we see time and time again that the human heart is sinful and that we can't achieve a righteousness on our own. We, we can't do what is right on our own without some kind of divine intervention. So the Mosaic Covenant becomes a teacher, in the words of Paul, a, a pedagogue, somebody who teaches us, instructs us of our need for Christ. And then that, that brings us to the, the next covenant because we have the Mosaic Covenant, but on the development of the historical plan of redemption, we come then to the initiation of the kingly office in Israel and we are brought face to face with David and God promises David and his family an eternal dynasty. And so when we think about what is described in 2 Samuel 7, we actually see a tremendous amount of overlap with what we saw in the Abrahamic covenant. For example, in 2 Samuel 7, if you go through the description of the covenant, you see in verse 9, it says, I will make a great name for you. Well, who else was promised a great name? Abraham. Yeah, in Genesis 12. It also says in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. So in other words, I'm going to give them land. Well, that's exactly what God said in the Abrahamic covenant as well. You go through, uh, continuing on, it says that I will raise up your offspring after you. Well, offspring is is a key word in the biblical picture, uh, tying in different elements of the covenants. And here, it's uh, offspring isn't used that often in First and Second Samuel, and so it's intentionally used by the the author to communicate the the progeny, which also ties it lexically to the promises made to Abraham and other 
the other forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you also have the offspring listed there. And you also have implied, obviously, is this massive amount of blessing, not just for Israel, but also for the nations. And even though it's implied in 2 Samuel 7, in Psalm 89, which is the exposition of the Davidic covenant, it's it's declared explicitly as well as in, well, actually, even um, it's explicitly tied to the Abrahamic covenant in Psalm 72, where Solomon, who's basically giving a description of the future Davidic king says in him, all the nations will bless themselves, which is a reference to in Hebrew. It's basically an exact quote of uh, Genesis 12, three. And so you have the Davidic covenant linked very explicitly with the Abrahamic covenant. You say, well, what does that mean? Some people, I think, have hypothesized that what that means is the Davidic covenant wipes out the Abrahamic covenant, but that is nowhere indicated in scripture. Just because something similar does not mean that it's equal or just because something uh, looks like something else doesn't mean it is something else. So what is the Davidic covenant then? The Davidic covenant, I think, as we understand it, essentially becomes the driving force for how everything else becomes accomplished. In fact, um, some of my professors always basic uh, made the analogy to uh, Lord of the Rings and how in Lord of the Rings, you have the one ring which rules all the lesser rings, the one ring to rule them all. And the Davidic covenant ends up becoming the one covenant which controls all the other covenants. And what's essential about that is that this ties in the covenant fulfillment to one individual. Because when the one individual fulfills the Davidic covenant, then the Abrahamic covenant, and ultimately, as we'll talk about the new covenant in just a second, that also becomes fulfilled. And so that's a really essential paradigm to understand. In fact, David understands that the Davidic covenant doesn't just apply to him and his family or to Israel, but it applies to the entire humanity. Notice how in his response, his prayerful response to God, in verse 19, he says, You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is, the ESV translates it, an instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Well, that phrase, an instruction for mankind, is actually a Torah and for Adam, the the uh, most common word for mankind. So it's Torah, the word for law, is usually how we, we would translate that in, in many contexts. It's a it's a teaching for, for law, but it's more than just words per se. This is something that actually impacts and creates some sort of expectation and standard for humanity. It's a standard for humanity. It's a law for humanity, if you want to use that idea. And so David understands that this impacts everybody, not just Israel. And that's where we get to the understanding the international eternal implications of the Davidic covenant. Many times what I like to hint at is that redemption, Christ's sacrifice on the cross would not have worked if he was not a Davidic descendant. And it's not just because there was prophecy saying that he needed to be a descendant of David. It's because God has actually designed the Davidic covenant so that that individual has the responsibility of the world on his shoulders.
And that's exactly what we see uh, in Isaiah 9, for example, when it talks about a, a child being born to us and the government shall be upon his shoulders. He is, he is the rightful ruler. It's not just, not just Israel's government. I don't think we, we want to limit it that way, but it's, it's the, really the, the world government, as we see explained in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11. So all that begins to funnel together. Okay, so now we think about the new covenant. How, how does this work? So we talked about the problem with the Mosaic covenant. It wasn't in it wasn't a problem with the Mosaic covenant per se, but we speak of it that way. And the problem was the human heart. So now in the prophets, after Israel starts to get the hang of it and starts to understand that there's a problem with themselves, they they're just not being obedient. Well, when they start to hear these admonitions to repent and and to turn to the Lord, you see in Jeremiah thirty through or thirty one thirty three, you see Jeremiah or you see Ezekiel thirty six, you see some of the other prophets. Those are the two main main ones which are linked with the new covenant. What you see them begin to prophesy is not the same old same old, but something that's going to be brand new, something that's going to indicate a new heart. And in fact, that's that's probably the most well-known passage is in Ezekiel 36. And in Ezekiel 36, uh, the prophet says, I will give you, speaking for God, I will give you a new heart and, I, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then obviously it links this this new found experience with the dwelling in the land, which which links it with the Abrahamic covenant, with the uniting of the two peoples, Israel and Judah, who were separate at this time. They will once again be one and the kingdom will be intact. So this is the key. In the new covenant, you have so much overlap thematically with the Abrahamic covenant, with the Mosaic covenant. Well, the key ingredient, which is different and the most essential ingredient is that the covenant itself possesses the power now through God's divine intervention to actually give the individuals a new heart and a capacity for obedience. And so that's just an incredible blessing with regard to the new covenant. And it really distinguishes it from from all other uh, covenants, from the Mosaic Covenant, Davidic Covenant. Uh, All of those are essential to understanding what God's doing and what he's teaching his people. But the New Covenant has this internal mechanism now where it provides the power for obedience from within. And so it's different from the Mosaic Covenant in that the Mosaic Covenant gives the stipulations, the pathway to administrate obedience, certainly, but it's ineffective because the heart remains unchanged. But the new covenant then will provide divine power at its backing. And so Israel is assured of obedience and assured of achieving the status which will facilitate the Abrahamic covenant in its fullness because of the fullness of the new covenant as it's described in Ezekiel 36 as well as Jeremiah 31. Now, one thing uh, that's that's evident both here and in Jeremiah is that you have the promise of putting the law on their hearts and causing them to obey my rules. In other words, God takes divine intervention saying, I understand that you need me to open your eyes. You need me to initiate the ability to obey these things. And so it's, it's a remarkable, remarkable difference. 
and something that as we get to the New Testament, then you see this this remarkable expectation on behalf of the apostles looking forward to their nation, even just how Jesus uh, declares the the new found the profound implications of the new covenant uh, that are going to be understood, and then the disciples pick up on that, make this a center point of their teaching all the way from the beginning of Acts to the end through through the epistles. All these themes keep coming up then as a emphasis on the power of the new covenant and what that means for our life now that the Holy Spirit dwells within us in a remarkable way. So when we think about the great plan of redemption and how, how this works out, you can really link all of these covenants together. And there's more to it than what we covered today, but I wanted to just give kind of a brief synopsis and overview of how the covenants go together. Obviously, God promises redemption initially in Genesis 3.15. The Noahic Covenant provides really a background or a theater, uh, a sustained picture in which God says, no, I'm going to accomplish redemption. You can be assured of that. I, I promise I will keep the earth around to accomplish my plan of redemption. He gives the Mosaic Covenant, which illustrates, well, I, I should say, I forgot the Abrahamic Covenant. He gives the Abrahamic Covenant, which is going to be the means by which he achieves the redemption in Genesis 3.15. It's basically the counter to the curse. And the Mosaic Covenant is really a teaching tool, not because it's it's uh, in, inferior in and of itself, because the covenant is good, but the people are bad. And so the covenant becomes a teaching tool to show that the human wickedness and the human heart is the main deal. And the Davidic covenant then becomes really the pinnacle of the covenantal trajectory because it has, it ties all of these themes to one individual. And one of the things that I didn't stress as adamantly, but I do need to make a special note about it, is that built into the Davidic covenant is the concept where the king the Davidic king can stand in place for his people. And so that's obviously essential. And, and we will probably need to look more at that uh, in, in coming episodes at some point. But it, that's a really important part for the Davidic covenant. Then you have the new covenant, which basically supersedes the Mosaic covenant. And the biggest difference there is the fact that built into the new covenant, you have the the regeneration of the heart for the individual's uh in the new covenant and you have the indwelling of the spirit, which uh, was not uh, found in the old Testament. And it needs to be said when we understand the sequence of the covenants and really what they're showing us in the old Testament, the new Testament makes a lot of sense. And the new Testament really emphasizes this power for the believer in the new covenant, the active role of the Holy spirit, just the understanding of how the believer is freed from sin and the new covenant is superior to the old. Very, very common themes that we see in the New Testament. And it makes sense when you understand that trajectory of the Old Testament, how the covenants develop and help facilitate God's plan of redemption, ultimately culminating in Christ's death on the cross, which launches the new covenant. It initializes the Davidic covenant in solidifying Christ as the ultimate Davidic descendant, as we even see in Romans 1 through the resurrection. We see he's solidified his place as the ultimate David. And all this is is grabbed onto by the New Testament authors, and they keep pointing back to the Old Testament, keep pointing back saying, don't you see why all this works now? Because we finally have the one who sets all this in motion, and so everything can, can be working now. 
So thanks for listening. If you have any comments or questions, please email them to me at peter at petergaming.com. If you want to find out more information on the podcast or about me, visit petergaming.com. For more information on Shepherd's Seminary, visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.